0: Welcome, from Alpha to Omega. Omega.
1: Hello, and welcome to the 59th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Tuesday, the 27th of January, 2015, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week's show is being released a little later than planned, ...due to some frenzied uploading to YouTube of all the podcast's previous shows. From now on, all episodes will be released on both YouTube and Podomatic... ...for your perusal and enjoyment. You can find links on the YouTube page to the Facebook group, Twitter page... ...and of course to the PayPal donate buttons. Speaking of donate buttons, this week's show is sponsored by the very generous... ...new and once-off donation... Matthew B. And the repeat donation of John L. Thanking you, gentlemen. This week, there were no new podcast reviews over on iTunes to talk about. So come on, people, let's get reviewing. Every review receives a shout-out at the start of the show. Instructions on how to create an iTunes review are included in the show notes. This week... I am delighted to welcome to the show José Tapia Granados, Associate Professor in the Department of History and Politics in Drexel University. Originally trained as a medical doctor, José now specialises in the links between fluctuations in the economy and health conditions. He is also interested in purely economic issues and is the co-author of the book La Gran Recession y el Capitalismo del Siglo XXI or The Great Recession and Capitalism the 21st Century, in English. This interview is based upon a really fascinating paper of his I recently came across called Does Investment Call the Tune? Empirical Evidence and Endogenous Theories of the Business Cycle. In this paper, José looks at the different theories of the economic crisis, in particular those of Keynes and Marx, and sees how these theories stand up when you test them against the historical empirical data. Very interesting stuff, indeed.
2: Well, the first part is just a review of what people are saying about how how the business cycle works, what are the variables that are leading the cycle and all that. But, of course, uh, to talk is cheap, as, as the saying goes. And if you want to, to provide some evidence that some points of view are more plausible than others, then you need to provide some kind of uh, evidence, you know. The the evidence in this case, I believe, is that provided by economic statistics on on investment, on profits, on rates of growth of different things. And I believe that what I did there is relatively convincing.
1: So, Jose, what, what is the business cycle?
2: What is the business cycle? Well, I believe it's, it's just a kind of a alternation of uh, phases in which uh, the economy expands, business is good, rates of profit are good, investment expands very quickly, so generally employment uh, increases, unemployment drops, and this phase of uh, of expansion ends in a kind of contraction or crisis or recession, you can call it in different ways. Sometimes it's more severe uh, contraction, other times it's a mild contraction, but for a while the economy goes into kind of reverse with investment falling, unemployment growing because of uh, laid offs or firms going down. So after a while in, in the recession, or crisis, the economy tend to recover and, and the cycle starts again. That in my view, that is the business cycle. And in my view, it is a characteristic of the market economy or free enterprise economy or capitalism or whatever term you want to use to call that. I also like very much the term the money economy, which is a term from the American economist, Wesley Mitchell. And economists have been, uh, for more than a century, trying to avoid business cycles, trying to develop policies to uh, smooth the cycle, and I believe it has completely failed. Uh, the business cycle is, is a intrinsic characteristic of, of this type of economy, and I don't think at all that economists have solved the problem of uh, eliminating the cycle.
1: So there is some argument in economic theory about whether this is an intrinsic element of the economy, this crisis, or whether it's something external that causes these crises.
2: Yes, indeed. Indeed, for many economies, those who are in the school of neoclassical economics, well, the the economy tend by itself to equilibrium. So you must expect disturbances out of that equilibrium only when there are exogenous factors bringing some problem into that system. The usual uh, external factors, exogenous factors in the economic jargon, bringing uh, disturbance to the system are either government interference by tinkling with uh, with the money supply or taxes or whatever, or sometimes, other economies in this school appeal to what they call supply shocks. For instance, changes in the price of raw materials. The the usual suspect is oil. So in this case, the cause of the business cycle are the shakes in Saudi Arabia and things like that. So this is the view of the business cycle of economies in the school of uh, neoclassical economics. Probably in this school... There is not a, a clear cause of, of the business cycle. Indeed, many, many economists in this school confess to be puzzled by the business cycle. They say that they don't know exactly what causes the business cycle. This was said not long ago by Fama and economist that got the Nobel Prize in economics recently. So, yes, the business cycle is kind of a a mystery for uh, mainstream economics or at least a a good uh, part of mainstream economics.
1: You also, in your paper, you had some examples of some rather outlandish theories from the past about what caused these shocks.
2: Yeah, in the past there were theories that the business cycle was related basically to fluctuations in agricultural output this in turn caused by uh, weather events. So bad weather would be causing bad uh, harvest, and this would uh, disturb the economy since bad weather could be related with astronomical events. So sunspots or movements of some particular planet. Yeah, some people connected the business cycle to these astronomical theories. And these are theories that now uh, nobody even mentioned because, uh, well, they have no much support in favor of them. However, let me tell you, perhaps to be a devil's advocate, that if you look to early capitalist economies, let's say, for instance, uh, Sweden in the early decades of the 19th century, then you notice very clearly that the years in which uh, the harvest was bad, uh, there was a drop of the output of the economy measured by GDP. In that case, it's clear that the weather can have an an effect uh, on the business cycle by altering the agricultural output. But of course, this is a very temporary phenomenon because as soon as uh, as industrialization develops a little bit, agricultural component of GDP goes down very quickly so that oscillations in the agricultural output cannot have an important impact on total economic output. Indeed, these economist, this American economist, Wesley Mitchell, who studied from a statistical point of view business cycle in the last decades of the 19th century and early decades of the 20th century, he clearly noticed that it was impossible to establish any kind of correlation between changes in the agricultural output and the business cycle.
1: What are the main schools then that explain these business cycles?
2: Well, as I told you before, mainstream economics now, to a large extent, sustain the idea of exogenous factors causing the business cycle. These exogenous factors are usually either not mentioned, they are unidentified, or when they identify them, they usually consider supply factors related with raw material prices, particularly oil. And then, of course, to a large extent, exogenous factor that is mentioned as cause of the crisis of the recession is government interference. Government, indeed, can be in the case of recent decades, the Federal Reserve. So, for instance, In spite that Alan Greenspan was in very good terms with uh, mainstream economists, and he was one of them, in recent years, his policies as a chairman of the Federal Reserve have been considered by a number of economists as leading to these uh, speculative bubbles and things that eventually caused the Great Recession with the financial crisis of 2008. Then, of course, when you go to the Keynesian camp, you have other kind of explanations of the, of the business cycle, you know. In general, uh, Keynesians tend to see the business cycle as, as a phenomenon more or less autonomously regenerated by changes in investment. And these changes in investment, Keynesians attribute mostly to what they call Animal spirit. So it is unclear why entrepreneurs and rich people sometimes decide not to invest, and then there is the recession. So this this is the explanation of the of the business cycle in terms of uh, Keynesian economics.
1: So this is the investment-led theory of crisis. So what had Marx and Mitchell to say? What was their ideas?
2: Well, I I believe that this. Two authors emphasize very much the role of of profitability as a variable that is having a major effect in determining investment. Marx basically develops these ideas basically from theory because he had no good statistical data for looking at this. But I believe that his theoretical developments are quite to the point in this because he basically said, well, what is moving the capitalist economy? Well, basically is capitals trying to expand themselves to get more profit. So when uh, profitability is high, the process of uh, accumulation of capital goes faster and keep up. When profitability start to decrease, then this process of accumulation start to decrease. And finally, if profits are more or less stagnant and start dropping, accumulation completely ceases and there is an economic crisis in which the economic system suffers important changes with firms falling apart, with unemployment growing a lot, with wages falling down, so on and so forth and all of this creating the conditions for a new phase of accumulation. Now, Mitchell is much less theoretical and much more empirical. He was basically looking at statistics of what was going on in the business cycle of the advanced countries of his time. That was uh, Great Britain, France, Germany, and the U.S., basically. He clearly noticed that profits where the variable that changes most during the different phases of the business cycle. He noticed that changes in consumption were very small compared with changes in investment and changes in wages were very small compared with changes in profits. And he also noticed that that profits tend to start stagnating and then falling just immediately a few quarters or very few years before a crisis occurred. So he basically concluded that this change in profits is what was basically leading the, the, the business cycle. Interestingly, I exactly don't know why, but he never put a connection between his views and those of Marx. I don't believe that this is because he didn't know Marx. Uh Wesley Mitchell knew a lot uh, of uh former economic thought. He was an expert in history of economic thought and I believe he had read Marx. But maybe he was kind of afraid of putting any connection of his views with those of Marx. I am not sure, but to a large extent Mitchell's views are very consistent with the Marx views.
1: So what percentage then of total economic consumption then is investment versus, say, consumption?
2: Well, uh, I, I don't have the numbers now in my head. I would have to look around. But uh, the important thing is that considering consumption and investment as percentages of total economic pie, say, consumption is greater. Consumption is much greater than investment. However, the issue is that the the changes in investment are much greater than the changes in consumption during the business cycle. And precisely the changes in investment have the proper chronology to explain the business cycle, while the changes in consumption, which are much more connected with changes in wages, have not the proper chronology. Let me explain this. In general, in a phase of expansion, wages tend to be stagnant at first, and then when the economy gets growing faster, then wages start to grow, and precisely, they are usually growing faster immediately before the crisis. This marks notice and he wrote that in one of the manuscripts that then Engels published as volume two of Capital. Clearly, this, this was written by Marx not much before he died, so it's probably one of his later uh, economic contributions. He said, well, there are a number of economists who are saying that the crisis is due to lack of consumption because the workers have not sufficient purchasing power to buy all the product of the economy. Well, to these people, I say that interestingly, wages are usually growing the faster immediately before the crisis. And this faster increase in wages, which is also an increase in consumption, is usually a kind of clarion of the crisis. This is saying the crisis is coming. So. I believe this is a, a, a quite solid theoretical reason to have serious doubts about explanations of the crisis in terms of lack of purchasing power of the people to buy the product, which are usually called uh, under consumptionist theories or subconsumptionist theories. I believe it's it's a very poor explanation of the business cycle, in spite of which it's it's very common. There are many people who believe it's a good explanation of the business cycle and it's a very popular view.
1: So we have, say, the economy as a whole, we have maybe one-fifth investment and four-fifths consumption. And what we're saying is that the wages and the level of consumption grows quite gradually. There's not massive swings. It's quite solid how it behaves. Yes. But that when profits start to drop, we see then that businesses get very uncertain about investing in this in the future. And it's the fluctuations in the small twenty percent bit that makes the economy dip into recession. But the workers and the and the capitalist consumption as well probably is is quite stable.
2: Yeah, I am not Completely sure about the percentages you say, but I believe they are probably quite close to what is observable in reality. And I'd say what you said is a good general presentation of, of what what happens,
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: So how did you go about testing statistics then? How did you go about seeing which was correct, the Keynesian version or, say, the Marxian version?
2: Well, basically what I did was this. I I computed rate of growth, the profits observed in the U.S. economy for, for a very long period. I was using quarterly data, something like 250 quarters. And for each of these quarters, I have data for profits, wages, investment, and a number of variables. So, so basically what I did was to set regression models in which I tried to explain the change in investment using as explanatory variable the lag change in profitability during the quarters before the quarter I am looking at. So basically the model is to explain the change in investment in a given quarter using as explanatory variables the changes in profitability in that quarter and a few quarters before. And then I did the same but changing the position of explanatory and dependent variables. So I tried to explain the change in profitability in one quarter by using the changes in investment in the present quarters and in the former quarters. What what I found is that the first model, so profits explaining investment has a quite good explanatory power. So I can explain almost half of the variation in investment by variations in profitability. However, when I try to explain the variation in profitability by changes in investment, I get a zero explanatory power. So this means that in one direction of causality, I have much more ability to explain what is going on than using the the causality in the other
1: way. So it looks like profits cause investment uh, as opposed to investment explaining profits.
2: Exactly. But an important thing is this. I believe my statistics show that something like 44% of the change in investment is explained by changes in profits. So it's, it's not all. It's not 100%. That means this is important because social science doesn't have the ability to explain everything at a 100% level, you know? But 44% is quite a lot compared with 0%, okay? So if you have a model that explains 44% of something and another model doesn't explain anything, well, you go very much with the model that explains 44%, okay? So that's, that's the way I see it
1: it's pretty impressive that Max was able to get a theory that would have this level of prediction without much ability to view statistics at the time.
2: Well, yeah, I believe that's true. He, he was using abstraction, but he was, in my view, applying the proper abstraction. He was going to the main elements of uh, the economy. He was taking out all details that are not important to understand it and Getting grasp to the essence of of the so called market economy, doing that he was able to get the the major elements explaining the dynamics of of, of this society. Of course, uh, I said he had no statistics at all, and and this is probably an an exaggeration because, of course, there were no no good statistics, but there was some good statistics uh, at that time. It was already clear that when there was a boom in profitability, there was also a boom in businesses trying to expand and going abroad to invest more and so on and so forth. In I believe it's in the volume one of Capital, Marx uses a quotation of a trade unionist, a a British, an English trade unionist. That unionist was saying, well, well, when capital has a profitability of 10%, it comes walking. If the profitability is 20%, it comes running. If the profitability is 80%, they come as crazy. And if they have to kill somebody in the middle, they do. So this was an observation of a trade unionist without very special or very particularly good statistical or economic skills. And and it was a very sensible observation from all of these observations, more or less unsystematic, and theory, uh, looking at what are the things that can explain uh, how... The capitalist economy works. Marx developed a theory that even incomplete as it is, because, uh, well, you know, he died and what then was published by Engels as volume two and three are clearly a collection of of incomplete scripts that uh, the poor Engels did as bad as he could together and put some coherence in them. And there is coherence, but not 100% coherence.
1: So, yes... <laughs> If profits explain 44% of the swings in investment, what could we expect perhaps to explain some of the other stuff?
2: Well, I don't know. I I believe that to a large extent, the other stuff just noise.
1: Could we see those supply shocks or some exogenous things coming in to explain some of the other stuff? Well,
2: but the question in in my view is that precisely supply shocks work in the economy through profits. I mean, the, the question is that when, for instance, when the, when the price of raw materials grows, this tend to decrease the general rate of profit of the economy. It can increase the rate of profit of, of particular companies like British Petroleum or Shell that are selling oil at a higher price. But in general, the price of raw materials, when it, it rises, tend to decrease the general rate of profit of the economy. So this, in this case, the exogenous shock would be really an endogenous shock. By but because, by the way, you can you can imagine sometimes there can be a, an exogenous shock because some government decide to start selling a particular commodity in the international market. Yeah, you can you can think that, or or there is an external shock when, for instance. The Soviet Union falls apart and for the economy of Finland, that's a major exogenous shock because uh, Finland was selling something like 75% of uh, Finnish exports to the Soviet Union and Finnish exports were were a strong part of the Finnish economy. So the Soviet Union falls down, Finnish exports fall down and the Finnish economy go to the hell. Okay, that all these things are, are okay. And this we can imagine this as exogenous uh, shocks. but if you if you look to the wider picture, then you notice that all things become endogenous. For instance, there have been recent publications that clearly show that the the main determinant of prices of raw materials, and when I say raw materials, I refer mostly to Energy in in terms of oil, but also raw materials like minerals, iron, copper, lead, and all that. The prices of these materials are very clearly determined by the level of demand and supply in the world economy. So that when the world economy is in a period of strong expansion, the price of all these materials tend to increase. And in a given time, in a, in a given time, this can be a further factor putting pressure on profitability. So profitability can be modified by a number of factors, including the organic composition of capital. That means the ratio between capital invested in machinery and raw materials and capital invested in wages. But the price of raw materials can have an impact in profitability by cutting profitability. And this can perfectly be a trigger of a recession. So precisely prices of uh, raw materials usually peaks immediately before the great recession of one that they started in 2008. And now uh, you notice this phenomenon that oil is going down in terms of prices and Almost everybody is interpreting it as an effect of a very weak demand in the world economy. But of of course, this can have the opposite effect. I believe if the world economy is going into a new recession, the drop of uh, oil prices can have an effect of reversing that. It's not sure, it's still to be seen what is going to happen, but I clearly think that prices of uh, raw materials, or so-called exogenous uh, supply shocks, are better understood as as endogenous changes caused by the inner dynamics of of the system itself.
0: Welcome to the inner workings of
1: I've I've recently on I've read a paper by a post Keynesian guy called Thomas Paley and it was on the on the same topic. It was quite interesting because it seemed like they were doing some empirical analysis on this stuff too. And they seem to be coming up with lots of different theories to explain this problem away. They seem to come up with, you know, three or four different theories which are kinda of complex, which I could go through but it would take me a while to, to describe but it seems an interesting thing that people are still trying to look at this data and explain away the problems from their own theoretical standpoint.
2: Well I haven't read the paper you, you sent it to me but I, I, I had not time to read it. I, I cannot give you any, any good explanation. Well the question with economics is that usually people have very strong opinions And beliefs about the way the economic system works. In general, it's very difficult that they accept change of their views by looking at at the specific uh, data or specific statistics or specific results. You usually have schools of economic thought, and each one is developing their own models using their own statistics and often there is almost complete incommunication between them. This is kind of uh, depressing if you uh, want to develop some kind of science in this field. You you need people open to discard their views based on evidence. This is the only way that science can grow and can develop. But in social science in general and in economics in particular, this happens very rarely. In my view, this is a reason to, to think that, well, economics is not a science at all. It's a discipline in which there is a lot that is just preconceptions about things. And then, well, people use empirical material, but often the empirical material is used rather to illustrate what you thought should be going on than to try to check and test if what you believe is a proper way to think about reality or not. Of course, I say that, and maybe I am doing the same thing. I don't know. Other people have to have an opinion on that. I, when, for instance, when I wrote this paper, I basically have no preconception on, on what I was going to find. I first try to explain what are the major, the major ideas explaining the business cycle, in terms of uh, investment and profitability that, in general, many economists, not all, but many economists agree that are the major variables to explain the business cycle. And once I have said enough you know, two different theories, I tried to look at the data and see which of the two theories was explaining the data in a better way. Did I have an, ex- an expectation? Yes, I had. Because considering what I have read before... Considering that I have read, for instance, Wesley Mitchell, who already provides some statistics, that I have read Marx, and he was giving an explanation of why profitability is such an important thing to explain capitalist economy. That I have also read Keynes and all other Keynesians who explain this thing of, uh, of uh, animal spirits that uh, I don't find very convincing. I have some expectation of what theory was going to explain better the data. But I did the statistics test, and then I reported the, the data the best I, I could. So it is also true that human beings have a high ability to deceive themselves. So if I did... I don't know, <laughs> I, I am unable to have a, a good opinion on that. But that is that is my view.
1: So Wesley Mitchell is an interesting character. I haven't actually come across his name at all before.
2: Yes, he's, he's, he's a very interesting guy. I believe he wrote a very, very important set of things about the business cycle. But to say the business cycle is to say the dynamics of capitalism, and he is an empirical guy it has been often accused of being a theoretical well he had the view that before theorizing on something you have to try to look at the data and well uh, people who are against him or against this view say that well always theory guides toward the data you are going to look at and that, uh, that i believe that is a very tricky Statement because if that is true, then human beings are unable to learn anything. Because the development of science always starts with empirical evidence. Uh, The theories come after. Well, nobody was arguing that in the working of a market economy, the profits of of companies are a major thing. So he looked at them. Nobody is uh, arguing that uh, wages are an important thing in a market economy. So he looked at them, and he started to develop a collection of observations on major variables. And then he wrote a book, and this, this was exactly one century and one year ago, in 1913, which is called Business Cycles. He published that in the publishing house of the Uni- University of California. And this book is an incredibly rich description of the business cycle in the U.S., Britain, France, and Germany in the last decades of the 19th century and early decades of the 20th century. And he provides a lot of empirical material, but he also provides explanations of all that. He gives explanation, and these explanations are very substantial. So for that reason, I believe the, the guy is, a, is, a, is an important guy. He was not an heterodox at all. He was always working in the mainstream. He even was the president of the American Economic Association for a for a while. But then his views were increasingly discarded as a theoretical. He was attacked by both the monetarists, like in the field of Milton Friedman and the Austrians and all that, and also by the Keynesians. So after a while, he disappeared. Nobody pays attention to him now. In spite of that, as I tell you, I believe is a is a very interesting guy. He has also very interesting contributions to uh, history of economic thought. He he was a professor in Columbia University of history of economic thought for many years, but he never published his his lectures until two students who had been taking notes published them, and then after he died, another of his students. Develop all that. And that this, these are three volumes of history of economic thought that are very, very interesting material. I haven't read them all. I have read some parts only, but I believe he's a major, a major figure in, in economics or, or political economy or whatever you want to call this thing. Because, uh, he really contribute to the advancement of science in, in this field. At least that is, that is my view. And, he was a very honest man, he was uh, just trying to, to present what he saw and I believe he, he is an important uh, author. For that reason I, I cite him and, and I try to use what he says in, in, my, in my own research because I believe it's, it's usually solid and interesting.
1: Has this empirical research that you've done, has it been replicated outside of the US or in other economies?
2: There was some research done by this Dutch economist, what is his name, Timbergen. He, he did some research on the business cycle and published that in the 1930s and 1940s. This research mostly was confirming what, what Mitchell had done before. I believe he used data from the U.S., but I am not sure if he also used some data from the UK. I am not sure. I believe he did, but I I don't remember. I read this material a long time ago. More more recently, I don't know any investigation. I know there have been some people who have been looking at this problem, but the usual context have been U.S. data, data from the U.S. economy. I did some I look a little bit to recent data from Europe. There is some evidence to that profitability started to decrease in Europe immediately before the Great Recession. I believe the peak in profitability in a number of economies that I look was, I believe, between 2005 and 2007. But I, I didn't do anything very systematic, was just to look at a few statistics and nothing more than that. And I don't, I don't know of other authors who have been looking at, at this so I, I don't know.
1: Well, Jose, thanks very much for coming on the show today. Okay well, thank you very much..
0: Ever and ever, forever.
1: On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Gestures by Sunra and his orchestra, and The Retiners, explaining that's how it works. You also heard Hurricane, by Ms. Mister, and you are now listening to the recently passed Greek legend, Demi Roussos. Speaking of Greek legends, good luck to previous guest, Yanis Varoufakis, who has just become the Minister for Finance of the new Syriza-led government. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. And remember, if you want to leave a review for the show on iTunes, the instructions are included in the show notes.